Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. <clears throat> well, if you're listening to this podcast, you will realize, of course, you're listening. I mean, how could you not be listening to this podcast if I'm talking to you and you have your podcast on? But you probably can hear my hoarse voice. And because of that, I am drinking a cup of tea right now with a little bit of lemon in it. And I am preparing to uh, host Dr. Krishna Komanduri from the University of Miami Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center to talk history of bone marrow transplant and cellular therapy. I love the history of medicine. I love understanding where we were, where we are, and where we are heading. And I was reading an article that Krishna wrote on bone on cellular therapy and CAR-T's therapy in refractory uh, lymphoma in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And his opening remark was something about the history and the word lymphocyte, and it just captured me. I'm like, I'm thinking, you know what? There's so much history here into understanding the field of transplant. And let me try to share that with my listeners. Let me try to get... Dr. Komanduri on this podcast. And let's talk about the history of cellular therapy, how we got where we are, the history of bone marrow transplant, how we got where we are, allogeneic, autologous, all that stuff. So he generously agreed and we scheduled the meeting. But of course, I had to get a little bit sick under the weather, but nothing stops us from taping and airing the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. And, you know, the other thing that always strikes me when we talk about the history of medicine is we learn a lot with time. So because we learn about progress in medicine, there are things that we do today that we may do differently in the future because we identified new facts and new information. You know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think people have lost humility and they've lost, many people, not all people, many people lost humility and lost the idea that sometimes we may not know all of the information. There has been so many binary decisions, yes or no, right or wrong, without the recognition that sometimes there's a gray area in medicine. There's a gray area in science. Science is not always... Um, as clear as it is. And when you listen to Krishna on today's podcast, you're going to realize through the journey of a transplant and cellular therapy, how there were so many lessons learned and how mistakes happened in the past that no longer happen now. And that's okay. That's how we evolve as a scientific community. Because at the end, we all want to make sure we do the right thing for the patient. We want to do the right thing for the patient. And before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Komanduri on Healthcare Unfiltered, I'm plugging the show by asking you to find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, every podcast outlet you can have your hands on. Subscribe, rate, review, and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. For that, I would be forever grateful. 
And without further ado, Dr. Krishna Komanduri on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, I am starstruck with Dr. Komanduri uh, with me today from University of Miami. He will introduce himself, but we are actually taping this Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Today is March 16, 2021, for context, because if the world changes, Krishna, between now and the time we air it, we have to let people know. And I am sipping, this is, by the way, this is, I swear, this is tea, what I'm drinking. I've been, I was accused today on... Um, on Zoom that maybe this is an alcoholic beverage and it's not. It is uh, tea. Krishna, for the folks who don't know you and uh, don't follow you on Twitter, you're very active on social media. Maybe a little bit about you, where you are, what you do, and what got you here? How did you become the academic and the clinician that you are? Well, thank you. And uh, I just want to say that uh, I'm also an admirer and I really appreciate the opportunity and, and I'm struck by the diversity of opinions and topics that you've tackled. And, and uh, I think that that's, uh, it's, it's both uh, courageous and, uh, and I think lo lovely because I, th I think it's the spirit of academic dialogue and, and, and personal dialogue that I think draws me uh, and, and allows me to benefit from this community. So I really appreciate it. So my, um, my title right now is I'm the chief of the division of, of transplantation and cellular in, uh, cellular therapy at the University of Miami's Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. And uh, I am a physician with a background in, uh, in medicine and hematology and medical oncology, though for the last really 20 years or so, I've really uh, been a stem cell transplant doc and, and over the last several years have become one of uh, many physicians who has uh, become a T-cell immunotherapy doctor, which really is interesting to me because I, um, I started my career, I would say, uh, after doing my internal medicine residency at UCLA and, and having gone to medical school at the University of Minnesota with an idea that I was interested probably in, in, in hematology and oncology. I went to UC San Francisco to train in, in hematology and medical oncology in, in 1994 and was there for five years, uh, during which time I spent three and a half years in the laboratory studying T-cell immunology, uh, actually at what, in retrospect, turns out to have been the peak of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. And I guess we can come back to why I did HIV immunology at the time. I was really interested in, uh, in immunology related to cancer, but I honestly couldn't find uh, immunology related to cancer at that time. But I did train as a physician scientist. And uh, in 1999, I moved to the MD Anderson Cancer Center, where I uh, then spent uh, nine years uh, as, uh, uh, as a junior faculty member. And, and then I uh, became an associate professor there when, when I, where I functioned uh, in a number of capacities. I was a clinician in, in the department of, of what became uh, called the STEM, Department of Stem Cell Transplantation and cellular therapy, uh, and I had, uh, and still have uh, a research laboratory. So I have a, a wet laboratory uh, that has focused on, on T cell immunology, and it was primarily human immunology. But I'm actually doing more mouse stuff uh, as time progresses. 
And then I had a number of educational roles. We were talking about uh, an old uh, mutual friend and I, I ran the blood marrow transplant fellowship program at MD Anderson for uh, eight years. And uh, for the last several years that I was there, I was the associate director of the hematology oncology fellowship program and, and was in particular responsible for coordinating the training of individuals who are interested primarily in hematology and, uh, and as physician scientists. So I moved from MD Anderson to the University of Miami in, in, in 2008, I think because probably like you, I, I like new challenges. Perhaps uh, at that point, I, I, I realized that although I was very happy at MD Anderson as a physician scientist, I wanted to reinvent myself and challenge myself. And I came to Miami to build a stem cell transplant program. And the program at the time I got here was actually quite small. It was doing between 40 and 45 stem cell transplants a year and only about 10 allogeneic transplants uh, a year. And in, in the last year before COVID, we did over 250 transplants and about 100 allogeneic transplants. And we've become a, a leading center for CAR T cell therapies. So, so I, I um, have kind of gone through this interesting arc where I started off doing T cell immunology when at a place where there was no cancer immunology. And, and I would say in the last several years, I've been delighted that a couple of my major interests have caught up with me. One is the ability to apply T cells directly in cancers, not that I developed CAR T cells or was responsible for that. But then the, the other thing I really started my career studying was how the immune response uh, response to viruses. Uh, I've spent over 20, almost 25 years now in the laboratory studying immune response to the cytomegalovirus and other viruses. And, and I kind of made my reputation uh, as one of the first individuals who developed assessments of, of uh, human responses to individual viruses. So all of a sudden in 20, uh, 2020, 2021, uh, you know, what used to be, uh, you know, a question, well, I, people say, well, why are you studying antiviral immunity and why does anyone care? So now, you know, of course, uh, you, you know, everybody of course is an expert in antiviral immunity, but I, I happen to actually be a real expert in antiviral immunity. Yeah, I mean, there's about 200 million experts on that. <laughs> you know, but uh, to give the listeners a background, <clears throat> I mean, you've had a, you have an illustrious career, Krishna, but um, I reached out to you after I was um, reading an article you wrote in the Journal of Clinical Oncology recent article, maybe it's about a month old or so, but, uh, and you were talking about uh, CAR-T essentially, the, you know, and the use of cellular therapy in, um, in uh, relapsed uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And what struck me was really the first paragraph as I was reading, because, you know, I, you know, a lot of times I feel it's the hook, right? It's as a writer, whether you're writing a scientific article or writing something to the lay public, your first two paragraphs either going to draw me in, I want to write, read the whole thing, or I am like, okay, maybe I, I won't do that. I'll just read the abstract and move on. And you hooked me on because you brought some history into it and with the lymphocytes and all of these things. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have you on because we're going to talk history of this. And I want to try to talk about the history of bone marrow transplant, when things started, cellular therapy, just to give the listeners a flavor of how long sometimes progress takes and where we are today to where we were before uh, from BMT, bone marrow transplant, and then CAR T cellular therapy um, and, uh, and so forth. So 
you you're 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 in charge take us through where where did this all start where did it all begin so that's wonderful and i uh, this is obviously these are topics that are near and dear to my heart so it's it's really fun to to talk about this so let me say um maybe as an intermediate starting point and i'll go backward from there uh, the journal of immunology has existed for a long time i'm not sure when it was founded but if you look at the indices of the Journal of Immunology, the word lymphocyte did actually not appear in the index of the Journal of Immunology until 1948. Um, so there was actually decades where the journal existed before the term lymphocyte even uh, came into being. If you really want to go way back, uh, you know, the, the first description of immunologic memory uh, was probably uh, during the plague of Athens uh, and the, the, the Greek uh, historian Thucydides was describing the fact that during the plague of Athens that there were individuals who, could, who had recovered themselves from infection and then could become caregivers for others. Uh, and he wrote uh, something to the effect that uh, with freedom from apprehension about death at least they, uh, and, and or uh, you know, without serious reinfection effectively. So he, he noted that individuals who had recovered could care for others without worry of reinfection, right? So that, that was probably, in hindsight, the first meaningful description of immunologic memory. And, and then I think we knew through uh, efforts of, uh, you know, through the Middle Ages that there was some sense of, of protection. And we knew that, that the concept of you know, variolation, which was you know, taking uh, inocula from lesions and giving them to others was actually introduced to Western Europe. I think it was by the, the wife of a Turkish ambassador uh, in, in the early 18th century. Uh, and then Edward Jenner, you know, very famously took uh, the observation that milkmaids you know, were around cowpox, uh, which was uh, you know, something uh, related to smallpox uh, and, and thought, well, let me do an experiment. And the experiment that he did was actually pretty horrific. He took pus from the hand uh, of a, a lesion from a milkmaid and inoculated it into uh, a healthy eight-year-old boy, okay? Uh, and imagine, you know, <laughs> taking, uh, taking uh, and then worse, uh, six weeks later, he injected that eight-year-old boy with pus from smallpox uh, lesions. Boy, right? Uh, talk yeah. about how research used to be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no IRB, uh, clearly. Um, and remarkably, of course, uh, you know, and, and the, the story ended well, uh, as opposed to uh, with uh, you know uh, a jail cell. The the boy did not get smallpox, right? And that that led to you know the the you know the idea that you know we we could the idea that the immune system recognizes you know, variants, right? So I think if you, if you go from there, you know, we had a concept of immunologic memory, but we didn't have an understanding of how, how that developed or what the mechanism was. And, you know, Paul Ehrlich, uh, you know, the great Stanford, uh, uh, you know, scientist uh, uh, at the, really the beginning of the, you know, late 19th century, beginning of the tw uh, 20th century, had this theory that, that there were what he called side chains uh, in immune cells, uh, let's not talk about what he thought those immune cells were, and that they could be maybe receptors for uh, nutrients in the cell, 
uh, and that if the nutrients kind of overwhelm those side chains uh, of, of, the, of the, the cells, that they would make more of those and some of those would get shed into the blood, right? So this was very, a primitive notion of what kind of became a theory of, of humoral immunity later on. Um, but really, you know, um, Ehrlich and others really had no idea what the cells were at all. And, and again, it wasn't until really the 1948 when, you know, the term lymphocyte was used. Uh, a guy named James Gowans uh, in England uh, in 1959 recognized, uh, you know, that, that lymphocytes uh, really probably spent most of their time in lymph nodes uh, and that only a small fraction of them, he actually used radioactive labeling experiments, were circulating in the blood. So he, he introduced at the end of 1959, the, this concept of recirculation of cells from the blood to the lymph, right? Before that, people actually said, you know, uh, I think Ar Arnold Rich, the famous uh, immunologist said in the 1950s that basically that we, you know, there, there was an embarrassment of knowledge about, about, you know, these small blue lymphocytes, right? And, you know, it wasn't really until that work in, in 1959 that we had any idea of what these cells were doing. We knew also around that time, 1955 was the first time somebody transferred cells from one animal to another. Serotherapy had existed for decades. We knew we could transfer antibodies, but the idea that cells could actually confer immunity from one to another, uh, you know, one animal to another wasn't really didn't something that happened until the 1950s. But in the 1960s, uh, Jock Miller in, in Australia and then Bob Good in, in Minnesota showed you know, that, that really the organ uh, called the bursa fabricus that, that produces you know, what we know to be B cells in chickens, you know, that, that activity resided in the bone marrow in humans and that there was a separate organ called the thymus uh, that, uh, that we knew existed, but we didn't think it did anything. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you know, outstanding immunologists thought that the thymus didn't do anything, but uh, Miller thymectomized neonatal animals. He was actually trying to study leukemia, actually. He was, he was looking at mechanisms of leukemia and viral uh, infections. And he basically found that, that animals who were neonatally thymectomized, you know, uh, could tolerate skin grafts without rejecting them. And that led to the notion, and we now, of course, call T cells, you know, T cells are T cells because they're thymus derived. But you know, when people proposed that T cells and B cells were different cells, uh, people didn't believe it. And, and I think very famously, um, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but somebody... Oh, yes. It's actually okay. highly encouraged. Totally fine. Great. So, so at one of the meetings uh, where, you know, the, the existence of separate lineages of small blue cells, uh, B cells and T cells were proposed, uh, someone famously said, I'm not sure who, who it was, but that B and T are the first and last letters of the word bullshit, right? So, <laughs> so I mean, literally people rejected the notion that these blue cells actually had different functions, right? And it wasn't until, you know, the, in you know, 1966 to 1968 that it was recognized that, that you had to, to get antibody production, you had to both have, you know, T cell help effectively and bone marrow cells, and that led to things. So, so where does that, you know, I mean, it, so if you really kind of look, you know, you know, where we were, it wasn't until the 1940s that the word lymphocyte was used, 1950s that we recognized that cells could be transferred. It wasn't until late 1960s that we understood that B cells and T cells were different cells. 
you know, it wasn't until the 1970s and 1980s that we figured how T cells work, you know, through T cell receptors and how, uh, and, and in the 1970s, how B cells rearrange. So shocking how little we knew. So now get back to your, your earlier question about transplant. Well, but, but first, of all, first of all, you have to, how do you know all of this stuff? Oh, you like, I, like do, no, but like, I mean, do you, did you, are there specific books you actually read, like what history of medicine and stuff like that, or just part of your training was you had to know this stuff? No, I definitely didn't have to know it as part of my training. And one of the things I like to ask students today, um, and, and I'll, I'll get you to a discovery that I was, you know, helped to confirm. I ask people today, you know, if they have any sense that the thymus is active in adults. And there are still people today who tell me that the thymus is a vestigial organ in adults. And I'll, I'll talk to you about, about that. But I think I was trained um, at UCSF, you know, in a laboratory of, of a guy named Mike McCune. And Mike, Mike is now a senior advisor to Bill and Melinda Gates. And is just a brilliant guy. He um, was, it helped to found systemics with uh, Irv Weissman and, and did a lot of very fundamental biology and, and trained at the, at the Rockefeller. Um, and Mike, you know, I think that um, had a very classical understanding and used to give me piles of, of at that point, of course, you know, we, we weren't using PDFs, uh, you, you know, piles of papers. And, and I think encouraged me, and I probably always had it in me, the value of going to the primary literature, you know, so I'm, I was one of those geeks who used to go and find the, you know, the, the, the paper, uh, you know, the you know, Crick and uh, Watson paper or other things. And, and I was lucky to have a couple of mentors like Salvador Luria, who was Jim Watson's advisor and, and shared a Nobel prize for his work on bacteriophages that I think gave me exposure. So, you know, I, I really felt and feel that, you know, it's good to have a really basic understanding of where the field came from. So I like reading that primary literature. So most of it is, has been going to textbooks that are old uh, and then going to the primary references that are older and trying to reconstruct it. Obviously there's a limit to what we, one can do. No, no, of course, it's just amazing. So now we're in the eighties. You took us through, now we're in the eighties. What happened in the eighties? Well, let me, you know, Don Thomas started doing transplants in 1957. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if you know, uh, you're, I know you're a sports fan, but you know, where Don Thomas started before he went to Seattle, he started in Cooperstown, New York. I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't. Um, very few people uh, think of Don Thomas in Cooperstown. They think of him in, in Seattle, but he went to, the, to Seattle um, and he started doing, uh, you know, bone marrow transplants. Uh, and really for about a decade, there were no survivors of bone marrow transplants. Uh, the first survivor of a bone marrow transplant was somebody who was actually transplanted at my medical school alma mater in 1968. And it was a child who got a sibling transplant for severe combined immunodeficiency. Um, and so if you think about, you know, where we were, right, we were doing allogeneic transplants starting in 1957, and, and indeed a little bit before that, there was a guy named Matei who, who transplanted radiation accident victims even before that and got transient engraftment. But Don Thomas really started doing bone marrow transplants, trying to cure cancer in 1957. But the first successful transplant was 1968 for SCID, right, so an immunodeficiency. So we're taking a B cell disease, you're transplanting cells from a sibling who could cause graft versus host disease. And we didn't know that B cells and T cells were different cells. Imagine, wow. so imagine how, how little we knew and how horrible 
you know, the consequences of that lack of knowledge, you know, was, um, and, and I'm reminded in that context, um, you know, about the, I mean, we were, you and I have discussed the concept of humility before. Um, somebody said to me, and I don't know if it was uh, uh, something that he came up with or, or, or had read before, but, you know, he's, it, it was a, one of my medical school professors who said, uh, remember that the textbooks of 100 years ago were just as large as, as the textbooks of today, but filled with a different body of misinformation, right? Yeah. And I, I love that quote because, because we had no business doing stem cell transplants in 1968. So Shortly after that, uh, you know, we started doing allogeneic transplants. The first unrelated donor transplant was done in the Fred Hutch using a donor that they found in the building, you know, who worked at the Fred Hutch. And, and the first successful, you know, the uh, unrelated donor transplant, you know, the registries weren't formed until 1979. So, um, you know, we really, if you look at the real history of, of transplant, you know, we couldn't, given that we didn't know the basis of MHC recognition until the 70s, I was actually in, uh, you know, the late 90s, part of a group that showed that we could detect human thymopoiesis and that 70 and 80 year olds had production of thymus. I was taught in medical school, uh, you know, in the beginning of the 90s that, that the thymus was dead, right? It was like your appendix, it didn't do anything. And so imagine that that this notion that the thymus is still a functioning organ is something that's, you know, it's barely an observation that's a little over 20 years old, right? And, and, that, and that affects how our immune systems work and function and how homeostasis occurs. So, so really, you know, we, we started doing transplants not thinking that transplants were an immunologic modality, but thinking that patients with leukemia, especially that filled their bone marrow, needed super high doses of chemotherapy and radiation to basically wipe that out. And we were just basically replanting the garden by doing a donor transplant. So, you know, Dick Champlin, who was my old mentor and, and uh, the person who recruited me to MD Anderson, you know, and, and Bob Gale posited in the, in the 1980s, in the mid 1980s, that perhaps allogeneic transplants were an immunologic modality. And, but I think the first convincing evidence came from Mary Horowitz, who has been the senior scientific director and the chief, was chief of hemonc at, at uh, Medical College of Wisconsin and the senior scientific director of the blood marrow transplant registry. Mary showed looking back at patients who had gotten transplants that um, individuals who had had T cell depleted transplants or were transplanted from identical twins had relapse rates that were roughly twice what the relapse rates were in people who got sibling transplants and that patients with graft versus host disease, especially chronic, had lower relapse rates. So that really made us think, well, you know, if you're doing the same transplant with the same intensity of conditioning, but when you take the T cells out, your double relapse rates, maybe this is, you know, maybe the immunology is actually important. And that led really not until the 1990s that we started stepping down the intensity of chemotherapy and letting the immune system uh, you know, do a big part of the job. And, and I think in parallel, that gave rise and inspiration to individuals who wanted to, to uh, use T-cells alone, right? People, people infuse T-cells back without any additional conditioning in patients who relapsed early after transplant, what we call donor lymphocyte infusions. And that without any other chemotherapy was put patients, you know, in some cases with advanced, especially chronic myeloid leukemia back in remission. So that kind of told us that you know, immune system cells without chemotherapy, you know, could cure 
disease that was advanced. And that was, I think, a really shocking thing. So we, we recognized kind of retrospectively that we've been doing immunotherapy with allogeneic transplant since the early 1970s, but we didn't really know what we were doing, right? So, so I think that kind of brings us to where we are with you know, now modern you know, manipulated therapies and checkpoint inhibitors. And we'll get to that. T t Krishna, t tell me about the autotransplant. We talked about how the aloe, obviously, and all that stuff. When did this autotransplant start as a modality? And then I want you to comment on the fact that some of my colleagues who are, some of them are uh, patients or caregivers or not oncologists, they say, why do you guys call it bone marrow transplant? That's complete BS. This is high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell rescue. Stop calling it transplant. Yeah. Well, I think um, in the case of autologous transplant, that, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and there's no, um, there's no BS. That, that's probably the correct, uh, that, you know, the most precise phrasing. So interestingly, you know, um, people might imagine not knowing how the history went that we did autologous transplants first because it was simpler and then we moved to allogeneic transplants. Well, the opposite was true, right? So Don Thomas started doing allogeneic transplants in 1957. The first allogeneic transplant again that was you know, curative was 1968. And then we started doing leukemia patients a few years later. It really wasn't until the mid 1990s that uh, studies showed you know, the, the Parma study and, and the, the studies of the Francophone myeloma group demonstrated that dose escalation was, uh, was beneficial. And, and indeed it was work that, uh, you know, in, in part was done by people trying to give intermediate dose melphalan, uh, you know, that, that um, uh, and, and I think that there are some uh, lovely case reports that, um, uh, you know, that others have written, you know, about uh, Bob Kyle and uh, others have written about much more eloquently than I have, um, describing attempts to give melphalan doses of like 70 to 100 milligrams per meter squared, which is kind of one half to one third what we typically give now in a, in a myeloma autotransplant to basically knock down myeloma that was refractory. And, and in some cases, patients would just recover uh, and, and they would you know, have cytoreduction. But in a couple of cases, uh, you know, the um, marrow was, uh, you know, patients had pr prolonged cytopenias. And in some cases they had had bone marrow collected for other reasons and it was reinfused and basically allowed uh, them to re get rescued. And then, you know, as we know, the, the, the studies in the mid-1990s, uh, you know, tested in the setting of lymphoma, uh, the ability of high-dose chemotherapy uh, versus salvage chemotherapy alone to rescue patients uh, with lymphoma and, and, and similarly with, with myeloma. But interestingly, you know, th those studies had uh, background mortality rates of around 10%, right? So we weren't very good at taking care of, of bone marrow transplant patients. When I was on service as, a, as an intern, you know, we used to have the intern get called and then they would write the antibiotics after examining the patient, right? Which is something we would never do now. Now the nurses reflexively, of course, give antibiotics at the first sign of neutropenic fever or hemodynamic instability. So mortality was around 10% in the autologous transplant arm. And yet despite that, uh, you know, I would say, you know, uh, you know preventable uh, cause of mortality in the transplant arm now, uh, you know, we, we, all of our centers, I think, have, you know, zero to 2% mortality uh, in autologous transplant studies. Miraculously, despite the fact that we weren't doing it very well, autologous transplant was better than other approaches. Uh, and, and that led us to, uh, you know, I think 
really what has been an unchanged approach. We really do autologous transplants for myeloma and lymphoma exactly the way that we did them now, I think 25 years ago, right? Is, you know, when, when those studies uh, came about. But allogeneic transplant, on the other hand, has, has really dramatically altered. You know, with, with bone marrow, you, you actually asked a question about bone marrow. We started off, remember, doing operative bone marrow harvest. So in, in the other thing about those early studies of, uh, you know, both uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and myeloma was that patients had to go to the operating room. They had often been exposed to agents that really kind of wiped out their bone marrow. They'd gotten melphalan if they were myeloma patients. They had advanced disease. And we didn't get that many stem cells out of those operative harvests. Uh, and then the time to neutrophil engraftment was actually very slow. It was often three weeks or longer. Now we were reliably getting graftment with peripheral blood stem cell grafts, uh, you know, um, in, you know, 10 to 14 days, uh, 14 days being the outside limit. And, you know, so, you know, with better supportive care, with better uh, stem cell products. What, when, did you, when did it start to do from the peripheral blood versus the bone marrow harvest for listeners um, who may not really know the bone marrow will, like you said, require patients to go to the operating room, be harvested. But then that's rarely done right now. You do everything through the peripheral blood. When did this shift happen and what, what made it click that we could do that? Yeah, so it turns out that the bone marrow is where most blood cell production occurs. And the primitive cells uh, that we call progenitor cells or stem cells, uh, blood-forming stem cells, uh, you know, really hang out in the bone marrow and are kind of attached there. Very few of them circulate in the, in, in the peripheral blood. It's not zero. And in fact, the earliest blood stem cell transplants were actually done by taking circulating uh, blood and uh, collecting large volumes uh, and collecting the few cells that normally circulate there that wasn't very effective. It really took approaches uh, with colony stimulating factors. Many uh, individuals who've uh, had a relative who uh, has had cancer therapy will get white blood cell stimulating factors. And, and it turns out that those white blood cell stimulating factors effectively make the stem cells that reside in the bone marrow less sticky to the bone marrow. Imagine Velcro being detached. And so then they circulate in the peripheral blood for a matter of hours uh, to a day um, when they normally wouldn't circulate. And the trick of using white blood cell stimulating factors to kind of boost blood cell counts and, 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 and in, the, in, in the process, making those stem cells become unstuck and circulating allowed us to collect large numbers of stem cells within a span of hours. Uh, used to be, you know, take us one to two days of collection where effectively blood is circulated through a machine and the red cells and, and the platelets that clot the blood are returned to the patient and, and the stem cell rich fraction was basically saved in a bag. And that dramatically changed things because when we started to use peripheral blood stem cells, you know, the, the, the amount of time before the white cells recovered in the patient, you know, sh was shortened by over a week. Infectious complications declined uh, dramatically. And, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the 100 to 150 times we had to stick the needle in the, in the pelvis um, which isn't dangerous, but it, you know, it leads to people feeling like they got kicked in a ho uh, by a horse or for people who live in Chicago like you, uh, you know, feeling like they slipped in the sidewalk and, uh, you know, uh, cracked their hip, you know, but it, it wasn't dangerous so much, but, but you know, it wasn't as, as efficient and, and it certainly was, it was a, a detractor. And we still do bone marrow transplants in, in the setting of unrelated donor, you know, transplants. 
not so much in sibling transplants. So when we have a matched brother or sister uh, in the donor transplant setting or allogeneic transplant setting, we almost always also use peripheral blood stem cells. But in the setting of when we have a, a, a match that's less good than we get from a, a brother or sister, we have more T cells, again, those cells that uh, you know, uh, protect us from viruses um, and, and other things, but can attack the recipient. And it turns out that when you do a bone marrow transplant versus a peripheral blood stem cell transplant, you have fewer T cells from the donor. And that, you know, in the setting where the, you know, the having too many T cells may cause more uh, attack of the recipient's tissues or what we call graft versus host disease turns, turns out to be a bit of an advantage. So there's actually a large randomized trial of bone marrow transplants versus peripheral blood stem cell transplants in unrelated donor recipients that actually showed some benefit, but still very few of the patients that we transplant you know, peripheral blood stem cells have kind of won the vote, the popular vote, and, and, and most transplants these days are done that way. And, and in fact, very few transplants have, you know, really should be done with bone marrow, I think, uh, preferentially. The changes in mortality and morbidity for the allogeneic transplant and the autologous transplant, and we're going to move into cellular therapy after that. Is that like what's a supportive care? Like, you know, I mean, it's obviously multifactorial, I mean, which is <laughs> what we always like to say. But if you have to, you know, you've done this for a couple of decades, if you have to say what, what really made a difference in reducing mortality, morbidity for the allogeneic and for the autologous transplant, what are the top two or three things? Biologically, in the autologous transplant setting, the move from bone marrow to peripheral blood stem cells dramatically decreased the num amount of number of days that the patients were neutropenic. And then the second thing was really, I think, use and, you know, and standardization of how broad spectrum antibiotics and then later on antifungals were used. When you have 10 to 12 days of neutropenia, you don't get the horrible fungal infections that used to be um, uh, a problem. For example, uh, you know, in the autologous transplant setting, we rarely see those. The other thing, and I think you can appreciate this as a, as a, you know, as a student of, of healthcare um, you know, quality and improvement is the stem cell transplant community is extraordinarily protocol and, uh, and driven with respect to how we approach things. We have our own accreditation processes. We just did a review. I think we have 87 SOPs, um, <laughs> standard operating procedures in the adult transplant program. And, and that, you know, when, when, for example, we have a very defined process that happens when let's say the person in the cell therapy lab gets called with a positive culture from the donor, you know, how that communication happens, what, you know, what, what the steps happen. So I think that that process of quality, uh, you know, implementation is actually non-trivial. In, in the allogeneic transplant setting, there are a number of things, you know, that idea that, you know, that the immune system was actually far more important or at least equally important to the chemotherapy that was being given actually made us realize that we should be giving less chemotherapy in general than more. The intensity of the chemotherapy does matter. So if you have really bad disease, you probably need more intense chemotherapy. But for many transplant uh, recipients, we actually were using such intense therapy that we couldn't transplant individuals very safely if they were over 55 or 60. Now we do allogenic transplants up to the age of 75 very routinely because we recognize actually that we can give them much less intense chemotherapy. And what we really need to do is get the, the donor graft in with the T cells that finish off the, the malignancy in most individuals. We've actually not really dealt so much with the immunologic complications, but we're very, very good at supportive care. So I think that those are some of the key issues 
that have really improved our outcomes. We're about to see, I think, some advances with respect to immunologic, you know, complications like graft versus host disease, but we really only have two drugs that have been approved to treat, uh, you know, graft versus host disease in the last 40 years, which is really pretty minimal. So it's really more process improvement, which has driven the early mortality from 30 to 40% to five to 10%, you know, in the allogeneic transplant setting, and from about 10% in the auto setting to, you know, often less than 1% in most of our centers. That's really amazing. And it definitely reassures a lot of listeners into that the procedure is safe because, you know, we hear obviously a lot of horror stories from 20 years ago and so forth. And I could tell you when I was an intern, I'm not going to say what year, but when I was an intern, I, I, uh, I mean, I loved Hemonk, obviously how I ended up being an oncologist, but boy, I felt it was so awful. The, the transplant was so difficult. And I went to the OR. I was part of the harvesting team because I was very interested. So then who started thinking of cellular therapy and CAR-T? Like how did this come up from a history perspective? Who was the, is there somebody who you would credit that started thinking about this, whether it's academia, industry, whoever that was? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there are a lot of, um, it's, it's sometimes dangerous when you start to uh, you know, these days we have such team science and we have often such important yeah, parallel development, but there are a number of individuals who've made critical contributions. You know, Zelig uh, Eshar uh, in Israel actually devised this concept that he actually called T-bodies, where he actually took um, an antibody uh, outside, you know, so the a normal T-cell has what's called the T-cell receptor, which recognizes antigen. And, and what, um, you know, a, like a chimera is half of one animal and half of another. Well, uh, a chimeric antigen uh, receptor T cell is called uh, called that because what we've done is altered the T cell receptor. So the outside of the T cell receptor is now an antibody, uh, like the antibodies that we use to, um, you know, recognize uh, you know surface antigens. Uh, but the inside signals like a T cell. So uh, Ashar developed these things that he called T bodies at first. Um, but they weren't, they were pretty primitive. Uh, and, and once they were infused, they didn't hang around for longer than a few days and they didn't really have meaningful clinical impact. Other individuals, you know, a number of groups um, and, and they include, you know, Carl June at the University of Pennsylvania, um, uh, you know, Steve Rosenberg at the National Cancer Institute, um, at, at the Fred Hutch, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Stan Riddell and uh, Michael Jensen at, at, uh, at, at Seattle Children's Hospital, Rainier, Brentians and uh, Michelle Satellane uh, at, at, uh, at Morris on Kettering and, and others, he really in parallel made a, a number of observations, a group of Malcolm Brenner and, and others in, 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 uh, in Houston, made a number of observations that led to modifications to make those T cells signal better and, and to persist longer. So one of the things that we recognized in the 70s, another historical note, is that you know, T cells have um, have built-in, you know, safety mechanisms such that they don't cause autoimmunity, right? So if you're, um, you know, if somebody's going around with a loaded gun, you want the safety to be on, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, somebody's going to get shot when, they, when you don't want them to. And, and T cells, you know, can cause severe autoimmunity. We know that. Uh, that can be fatal, right? So imagine if we have a million different T cell receptors floating around in our bodies, we don't want them to get triggered except in the right circumstances. So one of the way that a T cell, uh, you know, ensures that that happens is it requires two signals. And, and I, you know, I tell people, well, you know, you can like, let's say, you know, where the speakeasy is, but they won't let you in the door unless you know the secret knock as well. You know, that provides an extra layer of security. So 
the T cell receptor gets what we call signal one through the T cell receptor. And then it requires a second stimulation that we call co-stimulation. And that really, you know, it, it, the, the T cell doesn't, doesn't do what it, it's supposed to do, which is either to attack uh, a cell or produce cytokines or proliferate until it gets both signals. So it was the addition of, of that second signal, uh, you know, in the, the chimeric antigen receptor that was put into the cell that, that really led, um, you know, to observations in animal models that those cells that got, you know, two signals you know, persisted longer, right? Um, and so that allowed people to then, you know, tackle, uh, you know, uh, diseases that had a surface uh, antigen, right? And, and, uh, and one of the other critical things is because T cells so, so efficiently eliminate cells, uh, you know, with that surface target, you know, um, it was important to pick surface targets that could be eliminated from the body without autoimmunity, right? So B cell malignancies were very good because we kind of, you know, can do without B cells for for months to years without too much harm, right? So, so I think that you know the, the observations there um, with uh, acute lymphoid leukemia uh, in, in uh, you know New York and and, and Philadelphia, uh, and then uh, you know Jim Kokendorfer and Steve Rosenberg uh, at the National Cancer Institute targeting lymphomas really provided you know parallel and sequential evidence you know that we could cure advanced malignancies, especially lymphoid malignancies, using this approach. You know, that, that's been amazing. I think that many of the individuals, you know, uh, Carl June, Stan Riddell and others, Jim Kokendorfer who worked in Steve Rosenberg's lab, uh, you know, they came from a transplant background or training uh, and they saw the power of T cells. You know, I think that they had the hope that, well, we could accomplish what we do with a, you know, unselected donor population in an allogeneic transplant, um, you know, by, transducing one cell and, 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 and making that whole process much less complicated. And, and to some extent, we've done that, you know, very dramatically, but in a small subset of diseases. You, in fact, changed the name of your society, right? I mean, you, were, you, you served as president of the uh, ASBMT. I forgot which year, but maybe a couple of years ago, am I correct? Yeah, I was president in, in 2017, and, and, and that's, that's right, you know, uh, I will remember when I was president-elect for the society in the fall of 2016, uh, Christopher Bredesen, who's in Ottawa, who preceded me, asked me um, to lead a discussion of the executive committee because we felt that so many of the individuals who are critical to the science and clinical medicine and cell processing, right, the, the ability to cryopreserve cells and freeze them and manipulate them, all, all that expertise really came from the transplant community or much of the expertise. And you know, we felt that we had an, something to answer, but we weren't sure if the ship had sailed and whether there was still a position. So we actually had a very intensive philosophical dialogue internally. And I remember actually that conversation where we, I asked each of the, the executive committee members, should we or should we not do this? And I actually pointed, you know, I said on one extreme, we might even change the name of the society, change the name of the journal, which indeed has now happened. Um, and should we do this? You know, is there a role for us? And the feeling was, there was, and, and indeed the society went from the American Society for Blood and Marrow Transplant to the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. The tandem BMT meetings are now called the Transplant and Cellular Therapy meetings, and the journal is now the, is called TCT. And you know, we've really been critical on a, on a number of levels. We developed new guidelines to assess the toxicity of therapies. We've actually developed the coding, uh, ICD-10 coding. We've actually led Medicare advocacy to get reimbursement, uh, you know, um, appropriate, and we did the first meetings on 
on understanding quality and value of these technologies even before the first therapies were approved. So I do think the society kind of jumped in feet first. Um, it has continued, I think, to have amazing scientists again, like you know Carl June and, and Stan Riddell and, and uh, you know Renee Brenchens and others, you know who have been uh, I think seminal to the development. But we have I think really found our role. You know uh, this is a, a field that's so broad that everyone is going to share. Uh, I think uh, you know the, the challenges and, and uh, you know the necessary changes I think to make things move forward. But I think the society has has pivoted, and, and I was very fortunate I think to uh, help to you know, lead at the time of that pivot, which, uh, you know, I think is going to be one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm going to be proud of for a long time. This is a fascinating journey, really a fascinating journey. And uh, by the way, there is a book in you. I'm just going to tell you this. <laughs> there is a book, and I'm going to tell you that I really think there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of appetite uh, amongst consumers to look at history and, and what's going on. So, Think about this, and I expect a, a signed copy when you do this. So wh where are we going? Like, you know, how do you, you know, 50 years from now, our children and grandchildren would be sitting and, and discussing this. I mean, do you think CAR-T therapy will replace transplant? Do you think, like, what, try to put your futuristic hat and take us 50 years from now and let's go on the record. What's going to happen? Great question. And I'm really, uh, it's not that I'm afraid of committing. Uh, to no the fear, no fear, no fear. Yeah, no fear. So I, I have to say, one of the things that uh, gives me pause, you know, Steve Schuster just presented the New England Journal of Medicine a few weeks ago, the five-year results with Tisogen, Leclucel, and lymphoma. And you know, I'm not sure I was thrilled with the 31% plateau of those curves at five years. You know, here's the here's a disease. Now, granted, that's very advanced disease. You know, I think that we're looking right now with current products for CD19 lymphomas, which are probably a best case scenario at 30 to 40% five-year survival, right? 70% of patients who have an allogeneic transplant for AML are alive at one year, right? So, you know, and many of those survival curves are actually flat, higher than that. I think... It's not that I want to be doing allogenic transplants because I think it's the fact that we don't understand which antigens are being recognized by those donor T cells is really frustrating to me as a T cell immunologist. You know, with CMV, I can tell you exactly what peptides, you know, you're recognizing if your CMV seropositive, you know, I am, and I know how to stimulate my cells to recognize that. But one of the things that makes transplant work is actually we have a huge unselected T cell receptor repertoire and we kind of throw in, you know, a million different TCRs, and then they, you know, some of them do their thing, and many of them don't do their thing, and we don't know what they are, and we don't have to know what they are. So moving forward to kind of get to the point where across a broad range of diseases, you know, requires that we have some understanding, like we do for CD19, about what the surface antigens are, and then the ability to target them with a robust immune response without causing you know, toxicity to the normal cells from which, you know, uh, you know, these, these cells are often closely related or even derived, right? So I am, I think what's going to happen over the next several decades is we're going to pick off individual diseases and subsets of diseases. And most likely, it's not going to be just, you know, you know, you're going to walk into a CAR-T bar and you say, I'm going to, you know, I want that bottle and, and 
and it's going to make stuff go away. But I think it's it's really going to be, you know, you could argue that, you know, we're just 18 years out from the sequencing of the human genome, and we all talk about personalized medicine, and yet we have very few targetable, actionable, you know, therapies. But I think it's going to be a combination of targeted therapies, taking the brakes off the immune system with checkpoint inhibitors, and increasingly understanding something about how to manipulate antigens and antigen expression, and then you know manipulate the cells to use immune cells. But I don't think it's going to be one approach. I think it's going to be, you know, probably multi-modality approaches. And unfortunately, I, I would not be surprised if 30 to 40 years there are still a subset of cancers for which we have few answers. You know, hopefully that goes from most cancers where we're really effectively doing palliative care, sadly, uh, you know, even if you look at the curves with checkpoint inhibitors, they're pretty disappointing, you know? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, beyond those early successes. So I, I hope that, you know, for most people will say, great, we got we to gotta cure for you. And it might be, you know, the therapies A and C for you and B and, and E for you. And the, the people for whom we say, well, you know, we're, all we can do is kick the can down the road is decreased. Um, but I, you know, I'm pretty circumspect about our ability to, to get there because, you know, every time someone says, um, here it is, you know, we're at the threshold of the, you know, magic bullet, right, is, is uh, I think Time Magazine, you know, had, uh, you know, the cover of Time, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the 70s or the 80s, you know, here's interferon, the magic bullet for, for cancer, right? Well, you know, we know that that's not the case. We've been there, done that. So I'm, I honestly would love to say that we're going to, you know, take a take CAR T cells off the shelf and cure malignancies, uh, you know, solid tumors and heme malignancies in 20, 30 years. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, no, I, I like uh, I like the realistic approach. You also did go on the record by telling listeners that there will be no CAR T bars on South Beach. <laughs> That's what I heard you say. Krishna, you, you've been very generous with your time. This is just amazing. I mean, I, I honestly think we could talk about this for hours and I, I love... I still think you need to think about writing a book about the history of transplant, unless it's written. I actually don't know. But um, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Any last thoughts you want to leave listeners with uh, that, uh, you know, go to the history and what's going on that you think might be intriguing? Um, you want to leave them with a personal flavor or personal story? Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, happened in, uh, in, when I was, let me go back to my, my training at UCSF, you know, I, I think when I entered there, um, you know, I, I um, was nervous a bit about, about uh, you know, serving on the wards at a time when we were dealing with this, you know, local, you know, epidemic and this global pandemic of AIDS. San Francisco at one point had 10,000 deaths, uh, you know, uh, due to HIV disease. Uh, and, uh, you know, San Francisco General Hospital, where my lab was located, or, you know, where the, my, the lab where I trained was located, was really, you know, one of the epicenters of humanistic care of HIV disease. And I could not have imagined where we would be. You know, I remember when Magic Johnson got diagnosed and we looked ahead and, you know, no, I mean, nobody would think that Magic Johnson would be this thriving, you know, perfectly normal individual, as are most individuals with HIV disease. So I, I, I think the flip side of, you know, that kind of pessimistic view I gave you of not being able to cure everything with CAR T cells is also that, you know, I think that um, dramatic things can happen in relatively short periods of time. The, one of the other things that we did is we, you know, again, def defined the first ways to kind of assess 
newly produced T cells, right? And we kind of changed the paradigm of how we understand how the immune system functions and works. I do think that our understanding from the AIDS epidemic to you know, the fact that we were able to get vaccines produced that are highly effective and quite safe you know, within a year tells us how rapidly our progress is accelerating. And I think the, you know, just like with the space program and how many you know, collateral um, you know, gains there were in terms of material science and electronics, you know, I think that what we're learning about the immune system, even though we may not be able to cure all cancers within you know, two or three decades, is gonna yield a whole host of, of improvements with autoimmune diseases, vaccinations across diseases that we can't you know, cure and eliminate. I mean, you know, uh, TB is one of the biggest killers in the world. And, and I think, to be honest, you know, understanding the role of the immune system as an, as an inflammatory mediator in, you know, in, in a lot of chronic diseases, I think there's gonna be a lot of real excitement in immunology and it's not gonna just be in cancer, but in a broad range of fields, you know, we're seeing a convergence between viral immunity and, and T cell immunity for cancer and autoimmunity, which is really, you know, if you figure out why tolerance is broken, you know, in one hand, you can, you can exploit that to treat cancers. And on the other hand, you can hopefully shut down the immune response, uh, you know, in, in rheumatoid arthritis and other, uh, in lupus and other diseases. So. I do think it's a very exciting time for immunology. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure if all of the investor, uh, you know, sentiment is, is justified as much as it is, but, but I think that we are gonna see a lot of breakthroughs. You know, I think there are gonna be some errors in where those breakthroughs exist, but, but it's, it's gonna be fun. And I kind of feel like, you know, for me, I kind of got lucky, um, I, you know, I started studying antiviral immunity and then, you know, uh, the pandemic has not been a good thing. But you know, it's it, I don't have to explain to people why I study human immune responses to strange little viruses that reactivate. People now kind of understand that all of our understanding of immunology is linked and will provide advances across diseases. And that's really exciting and, and provides me a lot of hope. It took COVID-19 and a pandemic for people to appreciate what you do. <laughs> In a way, um, I, I would much rather have all of those <laughs> lives back, but... Um, but yeah. It's been, you know, there are a lot of strange silver linings uh, to a very tragic, um, you know, set of circumstances. But what we've learned, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think that we'll, we'll apply things much better across a broad range of diseases. And what we've learned from a process standpoint and a societal standpoint, we've, we've also learned, you know, how not to do some things. But, but yeah. um, I, think, I think there are, are, are things that are going to come out of this with respect to our ability to, to engineer solutions across, you know, complex problems. Krishna, thank you so much for, for your time. I really appreciate it. I have to leave you with one thing that we have in common. You have triplets and I have twins. Ah. So not triplets, but I have twins. I know that I see, I see sometimes you post about triplets. How old are yours? My um, uh, triplets are identical, which is interesting as an immunologist. And they're, they're <laughs> 18. They're actually seniors in high school. And, and in the next few weeks, they're going to find out where they're going to college. So it's a little bit of an unnerving time. And, and I have a son who's a, a freshman in high school is finishing his freshman year. So you have a triple college tuition every year. That's, that's going to be, yeah, that is, that is, that is not going to be easy. Yeah. My no. twins are 14. So wonderful. Yeah. That's great. I think it, you know, the, the people who, when they would see us with a triplet stroller and would, you know, appreciate uh, how difficult it is. Parents of twins, always came up to us and say, I don't know how you do it. Uh, you know, if I had one more, I would, I would, I'd be over my breaking point. And, and I think in some sense, you know, it's like internship, you know, you, no one can really prepare you for it, but 
you, uh, you, you learn to cope and you become, uh, you know, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. You adjust and you adapt. Thank you so much. I'm really very grateful. I, I hope a lot of folks listen to this, the history of medicine and the history of cellular therapy and transplant. You, you took us in one hour through a lot of information. And um, uh, I think there's more to talk about. So I hope to have you again in a few months. We'll talk about something else. You know a lot about history and I love history and I'm sure my listeners do as well. Thank you. And it's really been a pleasure to have this conversation. You're so engaging and your questions are great. And, and uh, you know, now that Mikhail Sekaris is uh, my... Uh, my, uh, you know, uh, div uh, co-division chief here, uh, you know, or my, uh, my colleague division chief here, maybe I'll have to give more thought to writing a book. And I'll, uh, if I ever do, uh, you know, I'll send drafts to, to you and to, to him. Yeah. And I actually read his book, reviewed his book. I wrote a review on his book and um, I, uh, I interviewed him on the podcast. But yes. no, I mean, I, I, think, I think people like a lot of history about medicine, about certain things, certain advances, as long as there's a there's because you have a lot of this personal stories and the journey that you could apply to it. So something to think about. I could be your agent, and we can find. Uh, you know, I don't charge much. Fifteen percent. I'm in. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Really Thank a pleasure. So much. Take care. Thank have you. Thank you for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you for listening to the history of bone marrow transplant and cellular therapy. And hopefully you've enjoyed going through memory lane and knowing how people thought in the past, how scientists discovered certain things and where we might be heading in the future. I'd love to hear from you what you think about this podcast episode and other episodes. You can reach me always on chadinabhanoo at outlook.com. You can correspond with me through my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Please visit the website. Let me, let me know what you think about it. You can also direct message me on Twitter at chadinabhan at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. And let me know what you think. As always, subscribe to the show. Rate the show, give the show the number of stars you believe it deserves, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague. On Healthcare Unfiltered, we tackle many healthcare-related topics and episodes, not just oncology, oncology and beyond, healthcare policy, patient care, so many things. So please tune in and refer a friend or a colleague. I'm going to leave you with... A saying, I actually don't know who says that, but it does feel appropriate for today's episode. The science of today is the technology of tomorrow. Until next time, take care.